and welcome to CausePods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at CausePods, we have one simple mission, to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes and make the world a better place, whether it's in their own local community or they're taking on global issues. Please visit us at causepods.org where you can learn about our guest show, their favorite charitable cause, join our Facebook group with resources for cause-based podcasters, and find a link where you yourself could be a guest here on CausePods. Again, that's all at causepods.org. Before we get started on this episode, just a small disclaimer, some of the topics that you might be hearing about, some of the conversations that we're going to have could be sensitive, could be triggering for some folks. So as you listen to this, please just take care. And if you need help, please seek help. But with that being said, we are very excited to be joined by Asia Rain today out in Salt Lake City, Utah. She is the host and creator of the Letters to the People podcast. And this is a podcast that's offering a realistic insight into the world that where some folks have experienced such terrible, terrible things like satanic ritual, torture, human trafficking, human experimentation, and cult abuse. And having heard that now, you understand why we offer this disclaimer. Asia, thank you so much for joining us here on CauseBots to talk about such a serious and sensitive topic. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it, Matthew. Why is this your cause? How much of it are you willing to share about what got you involved in wanting to launch this podcast and talk about these types of traumas that people have experienced? Wow, this has really been a journey for me. So out the gate, the reason I'm passionate about this is because it's my own story. This is something that happened to me. And I was born into a cult, ritual, family dynamic. And so from birth, conditioning was started and and things were just part of what my my growing up was. As I got older and as I found myself in therapy, basically, when I was 37 years old, I really didn't understand the depth and the magnitude of what this was. And as I was going through my process of healing, I was continually feeling like I was the only one, that I was crazy, that the memories that I w- that were surfacing and that I was actively excavating from my own subconscious were were so heinous and so horrendous that I I just I wasn't really sure what to do with them. The thing that was so powerful for me though in my own journey was the fact that I did stay with this and and I did as I was as I was healing and as I was recovering memories as I was having body memories as I was having emotional experiences with a with my therapist and with this witness that was very prepared to hold space and allow this process to really roll forward the way it was going to naturally roll forward i became different like what was going on was manias that i had were dissipating and going away rage that i harbored disappeared and other behavioral patterns, other things that I experienced, other body pains and issues that I thought were just part of my life disappeared. And so the evidence that was going on inside of me was really the motivation and was actually more than the mental chatter and the mental 
mania that it was causing. So I was having my own version of a cognitive dissonance that was going on as I was recovering these memories. And yet I was getting so many details and I was getting so many things that connected so well and answered other questions that even that was validating, but that still didn't, it still didn't eliminate the fact that I, after some of these sessions would not only go home exhausted, but I was just going home really kind of like bewildered and shocked and I really wanted to be validated. So with that kind of a background, as I went through my healing process and it, it was, uh, it spanned a number of years, the details with which I was picking things up and the, um, the way that the ceremonies that I was actually remembering came together and, and how cohesive it was, I started to realize that these are, these are details that I wanted to share with other people. And the main motivation was just to motive, you know, to validate people, to validate others that would have this experience because there, I mean, in my memories, there are always other children. I mean, there are times that I was actually isolated and I was focused on, but when these ceremonies would actually be held, there were a lot of other children there. There were a lot of other victims there that weren't children, um, you know, adults, youth. And so that was also, uh, you know, evidence that there were plenty of other people that if they were still alive, they would be experiencing some of the same things I was. And I just wanted to be able to say, hey, look, you know what, this is a real deal. This is a real thing. And yet I didn't really have a, have a way to do it. So at first I was going to write a book and I still actually um, have something in process right now, but even that's evolved. And then as soon as I started understanding how effective podcasts can be, I, that, that was what I found to be really motivating and um, welcoming for me to use as a platform to have people access as they can, as they might be able to turn it off and on if they needed to, if they were getting triggered, just to feel validated. So that's kind of the motive behind all of that. It was my story. I'm curious because part of your platform is used to help others tell their story and open up, expose others to these worlds that many will be shocked and appalled to find out exist, but in fact that they do. But given the the kind of skepticism that you had, even of your own memories, right? Like some of the, you know, trying to validate, is this what I really remember? Is this what happened? Like, how do you know when you're talking to someone that you're in fact getting someone who really went through these kinds of trauma versus someone looking for attention, someone just trying to possibly even just have fun with, you know, a serious topic like this? That's a really good question. And I appreciate you asking that. There are patterns that come with even the verbiage. There are, there's even an attitude and an energy, maybe an aura, people might understand that better, that when I have somebody that I'm talking to with these kinds of experiences, there's a hush that begins with the conversation. It's, it's almost like I can tell that somebody is going to start accessing their own courage to say more than, well, yeah, I've got this too, or yeah, that, you know, I have this experience. You, you can kind of tell, actually, you can, you can tell 
when somebody starts into the, okay, now I'm going to open up and be vulnerable and I'm going to, I'm going to share something that's even a little deeper. And as it goes into that deeper space, there are, um, there are, there are words and there are phrases and there's even, even things that could be very triggering to an individual that hasn't gone through a lot of their own therapy or their own healing modalities that definitely come up. And so if somebody's going to try and make something up and, and maybe I think that's what I'm hearing you ask me is if somebody's going to try and make something up, then they, there's plenty of uh, cinema out there that could be accessed and that you could kind of create something from, you know, really violent and very uh, gory movies that you could build off of. And yet there is, there's a difference between somebody really talking surface level and being in an action or an acting place versus someone that is really, has really been there. Now, I'm going to also say that I have witnessed and been in, in conversation with people that have, even when they get into a vulnerable place and they start telling a little bit more about what happened to them, I, I would say because of the work that I've done, when they hit a ceiling, when they've hit their own limit of what they've remembered or what they're familiar with, that's also clear because then the story begins to kind of cycle on itself and they, the individual gets kind of caught in the story and identifies with the story. And so that's also something that is part of the patterning. And, you know, I don't judge it. I can just kind of start seeing the limitations and the limits that are there. And I know this because I went through the same thing. There was a, a period of time where, and when I say period of time, I would say a, a few years actually, where I was still working through maybe some resentment and anger and, oh my gosh, this really happened to me. And I'm so angry at, at these individuals, at this, at this church, at this organization, at my, at my family, whatever I was kind of stuck in. And I had to talk about it. And I didn't have a big audience to talk to with. I, I wasn't talking to my family because my family were my perpetrators. So I couldn't access them. I couldn't talk to my, my in-laws because this was just so bizarre anyway. And so I had to be really careful who I spoke with. And and so sometimes I would just, it's almost like I would leak out a little bit to my husband or maybe leak out a little bit to my kids, but I had to be careful with that too because the way this organization and the way the, the blood cults work, especially in the religion that I'm familiar with, is um, my marriage was arranged. And so even though I wasn't familiar or even aware of that because um, some of the methods that of the mind control that are used, you're not necessarily knowing that you're following instructions, you kind of think that it's your own original thought. But the marriage was was arranged so that as you get a couple of people together and they start having children, then both sides of the family have access, kind of an, an immediate access pool to more victims. So it stays within families and it stays within communities and it stays, it's an easier way to uh, keep it perpetual and keep it underground. And so I had to be careful with what I said to my children or even to my husband at the time because I did not want to front load them. I didn't want to give them details to something that maybe they had access to of their own experience and have them disbelieve it just because I was saying, yeah, this is what I saw. Yeah, this is what my experience was. So 
I had to navigate really even working with myself and how I was telling my story to myself or or how I was censoring myself or not. And so there's a process that an individual goes through when they are recovering memories of not just experiencing it physically, emotionally, and mentally, but then as you are kind of integrating it into your life and into your world, the telling of it is also very important. And so one of the ways that I really helped myself in this is when I would go home, I would I would be in my therapy sessions for an hour to two hours. Typically it was two hours. And then I would take the cassette tape home and I would transcribe them. So that meant I was listening to myself again and witnessing myself and then writing about it. And so that's one of the ways I was able to really kind of get this processed in a really thorough way without getting super stuck in the retail of it so that it could be integrated. So to be able to tell if somebody's making something up or somebody's in a space of recounting something that happened to them, and I can tell the difference and sometimes it's really nuanced, but I'm not too worried about having somebody come up and say, hey, I'm just going to make up this this story and see if I can kind of share it or infiltrate or, or do something like that. Because if you're referring to having people share their stories on the on the podcast, I do have an intake form and there is some screening that happens and I want to have that platform available so that the stories that are shared can be helpful. It's hard enough to experience what you experienced, combat what you have to combat. And we were talking a little bit before we jumped on, still live in that community and given the the power of the organization that you have had troubles with in the past you know why why how hard was it to decide to put this out there publicly to create something that would be published online for the whole world to see for even your neighbors and friends and and you know folks who you would have to pass by on a regular basis who could know what you're doing see and hear this how how are you able to overcome that and and decide this was worth to take all those chances? I have wanted to be able to validate people and just kind of hold a presence, you know, that's, that kind of says, yeah, you know, um, I understand. And yet there's this, the, the community of people that have experienced this is, is really fragmented. I mean, the whole, the whole focus of what happens in blood cult rituals, in the mind control, in the human experimentation and trafficking, there's a lot of fragmenting that happens in, in an individual's mind. And it's done not only as a, as a biological and a mental defense or reaction, but it's also, it's a focused desire. It, it's actually something that is designed to happen because if you are a fractured individual, you're, easily, you're more easily controlled. And so to really separate an individual from themselves effectively effectively separates them from their community, from their family, from their God, from their whatever spirituality. To be able to shatter that is really the goal. And so part of gathering that back is going through the process of not only recognizing and seeing what it was that helped, you know, that created that shattering, 
but then really being in conversation with yourself to bring that back together. So because the it's so fragmented, this, this community that is affected so heavily by the satanic ritual abuse in a religious community or even a any community, it takes a while to find each other. And so when I wanted, when I started out wanting just to be a presence for a group of people, I recognized that that wasn't there. So then I thought, well, I'd write a book. And even writing it was an interesting journey because I've started this book a number of times and each time the overtone began with a lot of anger and I'm not there anymore. So I'm glad that that book never really got completed because I can actually approach this from a really more balanced standpoint and uh, with a lot more wisdom. To get to a place where I could actually speak about it took a couple of years and I, I was invited to be on a couple of shows back in uh, 2019. I was on I was on one and at the time I was using a pseudonym because I was just really very afraid of being identified. Um, there are a lot of people that would be very offended by what my story is and it's going to threaten their belief system and, and threaten, you know, a belief system is basically um, very much intertwined and woven in a person's identity. So it's, it's very personally threatening to hear that the religious leaders that you have thought and have believed have been leading a congregation, leading a worldwide organization in ways that are aligned with divinity and with God, and to come back and say, actually, they're doing the complete opposite of that. That is a really different and difficult thing to hear. So there's going to be a lot of pushback. So my thought was, well, I, I probably ought to have a pseudonym. Well, it was um, probably about a year later, I recognized that I needed to really just use my own name and step out as who I am. And that required some inner work as well. So it's kind of like this layering that has gone on with my own self-healing work. So I was in formal therapy uh, with a psychotherapist for eight and a half years. And then since then, I have been doing a continuation of, of healing that has accessed similar modalities that I was using when I was in that formal therapy setting. And I've used alternative methods. But one of the things that hit that came up really huge when I knew that I needed to use my own name was another layer of exposure and another layer of fear and another layer of mistrust that hadn't been really poked yet. You know, there, there's these raw places in, um, in trauma that we just kind of peel back layers and go, um, in a very natural manner, the way we, we can. It's a very organic and individual process, but I'd never really been faced with the idea of having to speak out about it and have my face on a podcast. And once that was presented to me, I had to work through that. And it took me a couple months to work through that. And that was a real, that was a real powerful process. And it was also really empowering to me to be actually say, okay, I'm ready. I can do this. I'm going to put my face out there. I'm going to put my name out there and I'm going to get aggressive and active. And that actually just kind of lit that spark and allowed me to step in and say, yes, this is how I'm doing it. So the, the question that you asked is how long and how long did that take? I would say it took a number of years to get to this space, to be able to say, here I am on a podcast and I am, I'm here. I'm here to really talk about this. What has been the 
response to the show as far as the people who you've had on and your audience, right? I, I'm. This is not a global audience, right? This is very sensitive discussion. These are very delicate topics, but for the people who are listening, they must have either some relationship to this kind of trauma or, uh, you know, relationship to others who have dealt with this kind of trauma. Have you gotten a lot of feedback and response from guests and listeners? And what has been the impact of putting out this content for them to relate to? You know, I have had a lot of feedback and I want to address something that you said really quickly. You you said that this is not a global audience, and I'm going to tell you that it is a global audience, or it can be a global audience, because this phenomena, I, that's probably the wrong word, but this kind of activity is global. And so hopefully this does reach a global audience. Um, I do have listeners up in Canada, and I do have listeners here in the United States. But to address your question, my guests have always been very happy to be able to be on the show and to be able to tell what their experiences have been. Um, I also have interviews with advocates and each time they've been like, oh my goodness, this is such a great way to be able to talk about something that in other audiences and other circumstances we really can't. But this this is, I have people that have talked to me about this and now I get to say, hey, check out this podcast. The other, the audience that does come to me and the feedback that I have gotten from listeners has been, I know somebody I can share this with, or would you be willing to have me as a guest on there? Or I think I know somebody that would be really good for you to know and talk to. And so the networking has been really interesting because it's kind of growing in its own organic manner. This is an underground community only because it hasn't been spoken about and because people don't really want to believe that this exists. Like if you really think about, I I like to kind of frame it in the in the idea of like, you know, go back to the medieval times, think about all the dungeons and all the torture chambers and that kind of thing. And then just realize that never went away. It only just got refined and better. And that's what we're working with. And it's really kind of hard to swallow that. And yet there are people that listen to this and they're like, oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. I thank goodness this is out there. And so the positive responses have been greater than those that would be cynical or a little combative at the moment. I think mainly because anybody that's cynical right now is just kind of like, I, I would like to think they're, they're actually in a consideration space where they could actually take this and go, well, maybe. And if they hit a place in themselves where it's just too much, then that cynicism or that combativeness would definitely have an outlet to come my direction. What I would love to propose to people though, is this idea if they find themselves kind of bumping up against this and just going, yeah, right, whatever, you know, I would actually ask them to sit with it, you know, kind of put both their hands out in front of them and say, okay, what if, what if this is real? Like, what if this is true? 
And what if this is just made up? Okay, so if it's just made up, life continues as it is, and you're really not going to be scathed. You know, it, it's not going to bother you. But if this is real, and you really have to take a moment to sit with it, and you just you just sit with it, you don't have to do anything with it at all. But if you just sit with the fact that you just gave yourself a moment to consider that this is a real thing, and and that I am my experience really happened in it. It was a continual experience until I got into into therapy. I, I what does that do for you? And then you get to answer that. You get to evaluate it. But at least you gave yourself a moment to believe something that you were trying to disbelieve or push away. And that kind of acknowledgement balances out community in a way that softens the edges and maybe brings us a little closer together where we would really want to just kind of create a rift. And even that's healing. Well, for folks who are hearing this and want to learn more, listen more, hear some of these stories, hear the depths of trauma that they're, that folks have experienced very recently, uh, we would certainly encourage you to go check out letters to the people.com. There you can obviously find the episodes, you can become a sponsor, or you can just donate to help the cause directly. You can also check out asiarain.com. That's Asia, R-A-I-N-E.com. It's a jewelry store with some really lovely stuff. And I'm assuming some of the proceeds of those sales would go to the show. But as part of your appearance here on the show, we, we are always asking people about the charities and the causes that they want to support that we can lend uh, our voices to. And today you are you are bringing attention to the Survivors of Childhood Sex Abuse Organization, the SCSA. It is scsaorg.org. We'll have a link, obviously, to the website in the show notes and uh, wherever you're listening to your podcast. But can you tell us a little bit about what SCSA does and how you're involved with them? SCSA, I am on the board of directors, and that is just fairly recent. Um, we just were awarded the 501c3 can now actually operate as a nonprofit. Basically, SCSA is an advocacy and support organization for victims and survivors of childhood sex abuse. And that is a really wide gamut, but it is there to create and, and hold a, a container for people that are wanting to connect with others of similar background. SCSA offers resources and support free of charge, basically, to victims and survivors. It's a new organization, just got off the ground uh, in January of this year of 2021. And it was created from a situation that happened that affected 40 people that were, that the story behind it was kind of complex, but they all decided to come together and, and create something that could really be solid and authentic for them. The organization was official in February. And then, like I said, we just received our approval for the nonprofit status. It's basically there to empower victims and working through being a victim and moving into being a survivor is a journey. It can, it can be whatever it is, but we're trying to move space and uh, hold space for people to thrive. We've got support groups that meet on 
Saturdays, there's men's support groups and women's support groups. We don't mix the groups because we really feel that being able to speak freely is part of a healing process, and so we don't necessarily have mixed company. But if you want to go to the website, then you can actually find more, find out more about SCSA. One of the things that SCSA did that I think is really fabulous, this year in June, they actually helped a bill go through in the state of Louisiana where they have completely eliminated the statute of limitations for victims of childhood sex abuse, which is pretty like profound. What it used to be, you know, in, in the state of Louisiana is that the bill called for a 35-year window and that didn't necessarily cover all victims of childhood sex abuse. And now that they have eliminated that statute, they've also included a three-year retro look-back window, which covers all survivors and victims of childhood sex abuse. So that's pretty profound. We can actually now have this bill to refer to for other states to reference so that statutes of limitations on any kind of childhood sex abuse can be looked at and brought to justice where they normally couldn't be. In, in certain states, depending on which state you're in, these statutes make it so you definitely have to be a child that reports your own abuse and then has evidence behind it. And, you know, it's, it's almost ludicrous because children, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to tell anyway because of the, the psychological punishment and also the, the coercion and manipulation that's going on. But, you know, then they want proof. And it's like, what, what child is going to walk into a situation miked or with a little camera? Like it, it's just kind of ludicrous how criminal justice system is set up that doesn't necessarily support victims. It's a criminal justice system. It supports the criminal. Eventually, I would love to be able to have that addressed. And I would, I would really love to be part of, of a movement eventually as this kind of gains momentum that changes that, where that does not need to be the case. And it is actually a system that can listen to and start believing the victims. Because in all honesty, when I was going through this process, this is not what any victim wants to be known for. I mean, I would much rather be known as, I don't know, the first woman to scale Mount Everest or, you know, do something really profound and exciting and cool. And people go, yeah, that's great. You know, instead I'm stepping out and saying, I was a victim of satanic ritual and cult mind control and torture. And I mean, it's unsavory. It's, it's not something that I want to just like wave a banner and say, yeah, please know me for this. And yet at the same time, that is really what I want to put a stake in the ground over and say, look, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one here. But I do know that I've taken a lot of time to heal and I have gone through a process where my healing is thorough enough that I can actually talk about this and not be triggered, that I can hold space for people and not be triggered. And I have resources and the abilities to be able to say, look, you know, not only am I going to validate you, but I can, I can let you know that your journey is worth it. And so that to me is really valuable. And, and maybe that is like scaling a Mount Everest of sorts. And I'm willing to do that. I mean, step one foot at a time and blaze a trail. Well, I, I, I think we can all agree and, and are very, very sorry that you had to go through what you went through and that anybody has to go through these kinds of traumas in their life, especially as children. But 
I think we are all grateful that someone like you is out there standing up, being brave, scaling this Mount Everest to try and put a stop to it, to try and help those who have suffered from it, and to try and get shine a light on what is a very, very, very dark corner that still exists in our society that I think we can all agree is just horrific and and terrible. And so again, for anybody who is hearing this, who wants to learn more, first go check out letters to the people.com. There you can listen to the episode, subscribe to the show. Also, if you want to get a little bit more involved and, you know, combat this, the SCSA, scsaorg.org is the website to check out. And Asia, it has been eye-opening and a pleasure having you here today on CausePods. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Matthew. Thanks for listening to this episode of CausePods. If you've been inspired by the work of our guest, please check out the show notes to this episode in your podcasting app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their show, their website, their podcast links on Apple, Google, Spotify, as well as a link to support the charity that they highlighted here in this episode. You will also find at causepods.org a way to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcasting app, how to sign up to be a guest on this show, and a link to our Facebook group, which is going to have special resources just for the folks who are podcasting for a good cause. And I can tell you right now, we've got one great deal from our friends at PodPage, but you're only going to learn about it and get that special deal if you are a member of the Facebook group for CausePods. And before I go, I should say thank you in particular. The show is edited and produced by Ben Kiloy of the Military Veteran Dads Podcast and what a great job he has done. And all this is made possible because of the great support that I receive from Shannon Rojas here at thepodcastconsultant.com. Once again, if you want to learn more, go to causepods.org. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time on CausePods. Pods.